5: Welcome to Darts and Letters, I'm Jay. If you've been listening to our Politics of Expertise episodes this week, you'll be well aware that science is not apolitical. The COVID-19 pandemic has also brought pharmaceutical science right to the forefront of the public consciousness. So today we're playing you an episode of Cited: the Tamiflu trials. Before hydroxychloroquine and remdesivir, there was Tamiflu. It was supposed to treat flu, and global governments stockpiled it in response to the threat of a bird flu pandemic. But this isn't a story about a wonder drug. It's a story about how money politicizes medical science, and we ended up wasting a lot of money on something that may not really work. Even supposedly apolitical public institutions ended up poisoned by the profit motive. We first published this in June 2020, early in the COVID pandemic, when we were scrambling for treatments to this new disease so the question of how we choose which drugs to use was particularly relevant. If we want to prepare for future pandemics, we need to keep asking that question. We're playing you an old episode of Cited because we're rebroadcasting the best bits of our back catalogue to prepare for launching our new season of Darts and Letters in September. So if you've been enjoying us on New Books Network, go to the Darts and Letters feed in your podcast app, hit subscribe.
6: Why, why are you, why are you so passionate about this?
4: Um, Would you like to be fooled? Do you like being fooled, Audrey? Do you like being made to look
7: like an idiot? This is Cited. I'm Gordon Caddick.
8: We are closely monitoring the emerging cases of swine flu in the United States. This is obviously a cause for concern and requires a heightened state of alert.
7: The year was 2009. President Obama had just been elected, and he was facing a swine flu pandemic. This is a speech he gave in front of the National Academies of Sciences.
8: But one thing is clear, our capacity to deal with a public health challenge of this sort rests heavily on the work of our scientific and medical community. And this is one more example of why we can't allow our nation to fall behind.
7: Obama was praised for his response to this pandemic. He's still praised for that response. So what did he actually do? Well, one big thing he did was stockpile a drug treatment, a drug called Tamiflu.
8: The good news is that the current strain of H1N1 can be defeated by a course of antiviral treatment that we already have on hand. We began this week with 50 million courses of this treatment in the Strategic National Stockpile.
7: Before him, President Bush did the same. He bought even more. That was in preparation for bird flu. Tamiflu is a treatment, not a vaccine. It wasn't even designed for a pandemic. It was designed for the regular old flu. So Bush and Obama bought it for off-label use. There just wasn't enough time to make a whole new drug, So they looked around at what we had, and they said, hey, maybe this one will work. This might sound familiar, because it's exactly what's happening right now. Dozens of drugs are being researched for off-label use to treat the novel coronavirus. Remdesivir, hydroxychloroquine, Actemra, Kevzara, the list goes on. So how will experts pick from that list? What will be the coronavirus treatment? Billions of dollars of public money are on the line, not to mention hundreds of thousands, maybe millions, of lives. You'd hope that the best, independent, evidence-based experts are the ones who decide. But the story of Tamiflu shows money can buy you influence. Maybe it can even buy you experts. Today, we open up the black box of pharmaceutical research. How do experts decide what makes a good drug? And how do pharmaceutical companies make billions from pandemic panic? Freelance producer Audrey Quinn brings us the story.
6: The story starts with Deborah Cohen in London. Deborah is one of those journalists who's so in love with journalism, she made me stand up a little straighter. There's this thing she says, a lot. It's one of the beauties of being a journalist.
3: This is one of the beauties of journalism. And that's one of the beauties of working on a journal.
6: But before journalism, she was on a different career path.
3: Clearly I'd had an inkling at uh, at medical school that I possibly wasn't going to be a full-time clinician. How'd your parents react? My mum was very much like, oh, I've just heard on the radio that doctors are the most respected members of society and, and journalists are in the gutter with politicians and estate agents and I said to my mom, while well, it's a good job, I like swimming around in the
6: gutter then. But her first journalism job, she didn't get too far from medicine. She started with the British medical journal, the BMJ. It's one of the top medical journals in the world. It also does medical news reporting. Within a few years, Deborah's on staff, of course loving it. Give me a story and there'll be a health angle. There's a health angle to pretty much anything. In her early years at the BMJ, Deborah had a pretty typical new reporter beat. She covered medical conferences, press releases. Then she starts looking into Tamiflu. This is the investigation that would jumpstart her career. The flu virus, it's a really big deal. And with fever, aches, and chills, mom knows it needs a big solution, an antiviral. Ask about prescription Tamiflu. Deborah's reporting on Tamiflu goes way back, from before it was even approved by the Food and Drug Administration. She tells me it was originally made by a company called Gilead, and then licensed in 1996 by a Swiss drug company. Ro- and am I, am I saying it right? Roche, how do you say the, the Ro- company I said Roche, name? I Roche, Roche, Roche. Roche, okay, yeah. let's, let's say Roche then.
7: When Tamiflu was being developed, there was a lot of excitement around it.
3: What was kind of known at the time was there wasn't a whole lot to treat influenza. There was some much earlier drugs, but they were really not very effective.
7: Seasonal influenza, just the regular flu that comes around every year, is an enormous public health challenge. It kills about 40,000 Americans each year.
3: Because what often happens with influenza, the influenza itself mightn't kill or cause serious health problems, but, but it makes you more susceptible to get an infection with something else. So you might end up with a, with what's known as a secondary infection.
7: Secondary infections. This is an important thing to understand. It's not usually the flu that kills you. It's the respiratory infections that come along with the flu like bronchitis or pneumonia.
6: But Tamiflu looked like it could prevent some of these. That was its superpower. If it could prevent secondary infections, this would be a game-changer for the fight against seasonal flu.
7: But first, the FDA needs to actually approve Tamiflu for the market. And Roche needs to provide the research to prove that the drug really does have this superpower.
6: Roche brings the data they do have to the FDA. And the FDA says, no, you don't have enough data for this superpower claim. But overall, Tamiflu's is approved.
7: This approval, though, it's pretty lukewarm.
6: The way the head FDA reviewer writes about Tamiflu in his approval letter, he is so noncommittal. He repeatedly notes that Tamiflu only offers a modest treatment benefit. It can shorten influenza symptoms by about a day.
7: He says the clinical relevance of the modest treatment benefit is a highly subjective question.
6: Highly subjective. Basically, he's saying if you think it's worthwhile to take a drug to reduce your flu by a day, well, that's your call.
7: And the FDA added a kind of asterisk.
6: The FDA made some quite firm stipulations
3: saying it has not been shown to prevent secondary complications. So they actually instructed
6: Roche to put that on the packaging. Roche has to explicitly write in the packaging, Tamiflu does not prevent influenza secondary infections, the things that can make it deadly. This was supposed to be Tamiflu's superpower. Roche, they weren't
3: Overjoyed, they they thought they bought a bit of a dud.
7: Despite the FDA stipulations, Roche didn't seem to care. In their promotional materials, they pushed the line that Tamiflu reduced secondary infections, along with other claims they didn't have the data for. The FDA found out and sent them a warning letter in 2000. It's not looking like this little drug is going to hit Superman status anytime soon.
3: That was slightly turned on its head. When Roche published, I say Roche published, but researchers published um, something called the Kaiser Review.
7: The first author on the review was a Swiss virology professor named Laurent Kaiser. Laurent Kaiser, professor de virologie. Hence, the Kaiser Review. He's here Uh, introducing uh, himself uh, in uh, the Swiss public broadcasting documentary, The Saga of Tamiflu.
6: Kaiser's team looked through 10 different Tamiflu drug trials, and they concluded that for patients who took Tamiflu, their secondary infections were less bad. Over 50% less patients needed treatment for those infections.
7: Tamiflu got back its superpower.
4: Now, you understand this this was a sea change.
6: This is Tom Jefferson. He's an epidemiologist. Do you say Roche or Roche?
4: I don't know. I I have no idea.
6: (laughs) So Tom Jefferson's quite
3: a character. He's based in Rome, um, and he's a British-trained doctor. He knows every detail about
6: everything.
7: Tom works for something called the Cochrane Collaboration. This is like the Consumer Reports for medical treatments.
6: It reviews everything, from drugs to practices like hand-washing.
4: It was great fun at the time, you know, you did the New Frontier and we did the, the, the antivirals, we did vaccines, it was great fun. Uh, we saw things that people had not seen before and a lot of work, were great
0: fun.
6: So it was, it was exciting to you to get to test the drugs that you were giving to patients and see what's, what's really working?
4: Yeah, to look at the evidence and then, and then, you know, you looked at the evidence using publications because you trusted publications. Because
7: they were in New England Journal of Medicine, JAMA, Lancet. Tom was on the Cochrane team charged with looking at the Tamiflu research. It reviewed it when it first came out and reached similar conclusions to the FDA. Cochrane saw that, yeah, it seemed to help people get over the flu faster. But it didn't seem to have that superpower of fighting secondary infections. But then comes the Kaiser Review. That's right. So this changed the the content of the Cochrane Review. When Tom and his team put out a new Cochrane review of Tamiflu in 2006, they changed the verdict. They said, indeed, Tamiflu could reduce influenza's secondary infections.
6: They'd seen it in the Kaiser paper.
7: And now Tamiflu has its expert stamp of approval. The little drug is now ready for prime time. It just needs its moment.
2: And it's official now, the deadly bird flu is in Europe.
5: And the fear among scientists remains that if the virus mutates and is easily passed between humans, tens of millions could
0: die in a pandemic.
2: In fact, some health experts say it's just a matter of
7: time. In 2005, doctors have started to notice that a particularly lethal form of influenza that affects birds is spreading to people, and it kills over half of the people it infects. One way or another, it's going to be coming into
2: the Americas at the very latest, July.
7: Experts expected up to 150 million deaths.
8: The United States cannot afford to have a Katrina level of preparedness or a Katrina-like response to an international outbreak of avian flu.
6: This is a very young-looking Senator Barack Obama.
8: With so many warnings and so much knowledge of the threat we face, there's no excuse for failure this time around.
7: Governments are casting around, trying to come up with something to protect people from this potential new pandemic.
6: And medical experts thought maybe Tamiflu could work. Why not give it a shot?
7: Okay, to be clear, the Cochrane and Kaiser reviews had said, hey, Tamiflu has superpowers, but that was just for treating the regular seasonal influenza, not for this strange new pandemic flu. So governments were talking about using it off-label. Uh,
3: there was this real panic about this, this drug that was going to save all these lives and if they didn't have it, um, what, what would they do?
7: This became the kind of thing where if you don't stockpile Tamiflu, you look bad. As the threat of bird flu grew, there was enormous political pressure to get your hands on the drug. Roche even started funding studies to show how much Tamiflu different countries had bought. And it made sure these studies got around.
8: Countries like Japan, France, England and others have now stockpiled enough Tamiflu to cover a quarter of their populations. With enough to cover just 2% of our population, the United States is again not one of those countries. Congress
6: wanted to put Tamiflu in the U.S. national stockpile, these giant warehouses for emergency medical equipment. By November 2005, then President George W. Bush had heard the message.
0: I'm asking Congress for a billion dollars to stockpile additional antiviral medications so that we have enough on hand to help treat first responders and those on the front lines as well as populations most at risk in the first stages of a pandemic.
7: The U.S. Congress approved a multi-billion dollar hoard of Tamiflu for the U.S. Strategic National Stockpile.
6: Bird flu never actually turned into a real pandemic. It fortunately never got to that point where it officially spread from human to human. But a few years later, 2009, a real pandemic did come. Swine flu. And now President Obama, he added more Tamiflu to the national stockpile. Now we've caught up to where we began this story. In 2009, the U.S. strategic national stockpile had enough Tamiflu powder to treat one in five Americans through an entire course of the flu.
7: And it wasn't just the U.S. going whole hog on Tamiflu. Canada stockpiled at least six million doses. Back in London, Deborah Cohen with BMJ sees the U.K. stockpile 30 million.
3: If you've got people that are frightened of a pandemic and frightened of the death toll, um uh, frightened of the impact on health services. And you've got a drug that promises to reduce secondary complications, promises to reduce spread, promises to reduce hospitalizations, reduce the burden on health services, re- reduce the burden on clinicians. It's not hard to kind of see how governments might be seduced into stockpiling it,
6: into thinking this is the right thing to do. This little drug that could It was now an international blockbuster.
7: But does it actually work? I'm Gordon Caddick, and this is Cited. Audrey Queen and I will be back in one minute. You're listening to Darts and Letters, a show about the politics of academia, ideas, and intellectual life. We're proud to be a new member of the New Books Network. And all this summer, we're playing some highlights from our archives. But, like Jay said, we are coming back with regular weekly programming this September. So if you like what you hear and you want to hear that, why don't you subscribe to our podcast? Search Darts and Letters wherever you find your podcasts or go to dartsandletters.ca. Before all this stockpiling, There'd been one country that used Tamiflu more than any other, Japan. By 2008, about 75% of the people who took Tamiflu were Japanese. Doctors had a lot of experience with it.
1: My name is Keiji Hayashi. I run a pediatric clinic in Osaka. This is my wife, Yasuko. She's a pharmacist.
6: Keiji Hayashi was a pediatrician in Osaka, Japan. He's now retired, didn't respond to our interview requests. But this is from a video interview he did for the 2011 documentary, The Saga of Tamiflu. Dr. Hayashi stands in his small pediatric clinic's waiting room with an impressive collection of Winnie the Pooh stuffed animals.
1: When Tamiflu was first marketed, I was using it But I later found out that there are many side effects. So I have been trying my best to stay away from Tamifuru. Sometimes, there are mothers who come to tell me that they have had terrible experiences with Tamifuru. For example, a two-year-old boy suddenly grabbed a pair of scissors and started going wild with them. Or a mother told me about a gigantic eraser that was attacking her, and she had to run away from it all night. When her husband heard this, he was in disbelief and also took the pill. And he was hallucinating that he was flying above the clouds.
7: Hayashi and other Japanese doctors had started to report seeing strange side effects in kids who took Tamiflu. Delusions, kids hurting themselves, even suicides.
6: Hayashi doesn't know for sure that this is because of Tamiflu, but it's scary enough, and so he stops prescribing it. So Hayashi decides to take a deeper look into the Kaiser review paper. This was the main source of hope that Tamiflu can reduce the severity of secondary infections.
1: His literature reviewed 10 data. I found that two had been published. When I looked at the two data, I found that Tamiflu lacked superiority in preventing complications such as bronchitis. So, actually, the eight remaining data that are not published are the ones that prove Tamiflu's effectiveness in preventing complications.
7: He's saying that only two of the trials that the Kaiser team had reviewed had actually been published. That means only two were peer-reviewed. And from what he could see, neither of them proved that Tamiflu had much, if any, effect on secondary infections.
6: So he wondered, where does it say that Tamiflu can do this? Hayashi realizes that Kaiser's team must have drawn that conclusion from the eight unpublished trials on Tamiflu. Trials that had been run by Tamiflu's maker, Roche.
1: And another thing is, when looking at authors' affiliation, four aside from Kaiser were from Roche. And another was a consultant who is paid by Roche. So I thought that literature was basically written by Roche.
7: So now Hayashi goes to Tom Jefferson at the Cochrane Review.
6: In July 2009, Hayashi leaves a comment at the bottom of Tom's Cochrane Review on Tamiflu. He addresses it directly to Tom.
7: He writes, Dear Mr. Jefferson, we have some questions on the conclusion in your Oseltamivir review. We have found that the conclusion is based on the other review, Kaiser 2003, and not on your own data analysis. So we looked at each other, we scratched our heads, reread Kaiser and we said, He's got a point. He feels like he's screwed up. He gave this drug his stamp of approval, but he didn't really check the data.
4: How can you trust this stuff if you haven't seen it? How do you know if you haven't seen it? We said, well, you know, it's published on a serious journal. We gave them the
7: benefit of the doubt. Now Tom sets out to actually look at the data, but he has to find it first.
6: The first thing he does is email the researchers that did the Kaiser Review. They say they can't give it to him, they don't have it. So he decides to call for backup. He calls the editor of the BMJ, the British Medical
4: Journal. I, I asked for advice. I she said, oh, this needs investigation. I'll put Deborah Cohen onto it. That's how she started.
3: It landed in my in-tray, and rather than farm it out to somebody else, I thought, oh, I quite fancy doing this.
6: So Deborah and Tom team up, and first step, they go back to the Kaiser team again. We went to Laurel Kaiser, who's the lead author
3: of the Kaiser Review, and Frederick Hayden, who was corresponding author.
4: I said, could we please have the data to check from these unpublished trials? And they said that we don't have the data. Roche has the data.
6: How could that be?
4: Um, Kaiser and Hayden hadn't seen any of the raw data of
7: the meta-analysis. Then Tom and Deborah reached out to the authors of the individual trials that make up the Kaiser Review. Those authors couldn't provide the data either. They said Roche had done the analysis of the initial data, and then they just analyzed the summaries that Roche provided.
6: Then Tom Jefferson finds somebody unexpected. And Deborah gives her a call.
9: I was one of the writers working on the Tamiflu
6: account. This is Melanie Sinclair. She now works in another scientific field, but she says to Deborah, I worked at a medical publishing company that contracts
9: with Roche. I was quite junior. It was my first job from leaving university. It wasn't the informative, educational-type job I had been hoping it would be when I first took the job. I thought it would be more um medical information so maybe leaflets and medical education um you know informing uh, informing the public informing patients that kind of thing
6: but that's not what it was she tells deborah i was a medical ghostwriter i worked on the tamiflu account and she tells deborah she doesn't have a problem with ghostwriting
7: but the question becomes who is running the show the researchers or the company.
9: See this is where this is where it all gets a bit gray area, isn't it? On the Tamiflu trials,
6: she says it wasn't the
9: researchers.
6: it was Rosh's marketing
9: department. Because this was all about communications, then that's the department it came through.
6: What really bothered her was that Rosh was keeping the data from Tom and
9: Deborah. What does that say about the data that we received and that we were writing from? it shouldn't be a decent marketing department that gets people to make the decision, it should be data.
3: So, the ghostwriter had written the papers, and when you've got a ghostwriter writing the papers, it begs the question, well, how much of the named authors, the named scientists, actually seen themselves?
4: In other words, these guys had not written the manuscript and are not seen the raw data. And yet, on the basis of these trials, Governments are stockpiled and are still stockpiling huge quantities of uh, these drugs. So, are you okay with the story so far?
6: Yep, yep, I'm following.
7: It gets, it gets weirder. The ghostwriter couldn't give the data to Tom. The researchers couldn't either. So Tom and Deborah only had one place left to go. We asked Roche for the data
4: Asked as single, simple researchers, we said, could, you, could we please have the, the data uh, from these 10 trials so that we can answer our study question, we can do an honest review, we can answer Dr. Hayashi's question.
6: This was the start of four years of back and forth between Tom and his Cochrane team, paired with Deborah and her BMJ team, trying to get the raw data from Roche. I read all these emails. There were 47.
7: Hi. Would it please be possible to have the data I requested ASAP?
6: Dear Tom, thank you for your time today. I have asked my colleagues in clinical development for the information you are after.
7: We have not heard anything from you. Could you please let us know the status of our various queries?
6: Hi, Tom. I left you a voicemail to arrange a teleconference this afternoon or tomorrow.
7: Are you available? I hope you enjoyed your holiday. It is now four weeks since you told us that you'll get back to us in two weeks.
6: Dear Tom, I will extract the data you are after, but I need to send you a confidentiality agreement.
4: They sent us a confidentiality agreement with a secrecy clause. Had I signed that, I wouldn't have been able to use
7: the data, and I wouldn't even have been able to, to mention the agreement. This defeats the purpose of the whole process. Tom wants this data so he can review it publicly. But then, after about three weeks, Rosh tells Tom, OK, we'll give you excerpts of the studies, and this seems like a breakthrough. Tom says, thanks. I'll take a look. We said, I'm sorry, we, 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 can't, we can't do an honest job out of this. Tom says there's a whole bunch of important information missing from the excerpts that Rosh sent. He can't use them.
4: We can't see the data. How the hell can we, can, can, we, uh, can, can we assess it? Can we vouch for it?
6: But Tom still owes Hayashi a reply.
4: The Cochrane rule is that you have to answer a remark that's made on your review within six months of that remark being made.
7: So in December 2009, Tom and his team published an updated review on Tamiflu. Based on what they've gotten from Roche so far, they say there's not enough evidence to show that the drug reduces secondary infections of influenza. That's the thing this drug was supposed to do. But it might. We don't know because we just haven't been able to see the full data.
6: Deborah and Tom's hunt to get all the Tamiflu data, it looks like it's hitting a roadblock.
7: And so Deborah switches gears a bit. She's been investigating Tamiflu from a research angle. Maybe that wasn't the right place to look.
3: It was only later when I looked at the marketing material and there's a rookie investigative reporter that was a bit like, oh dear, (laughs) I've stirred up a hornet's nest.
7: In Tamiflu's early marketing plan, the public relations team lays out the major challenges facing the drug. Flu seasons are unpredictable, public interest is low, and Tamiflu isn't the only game in town. In fact, another flu drug had also gotten FDA approval at the same time. It's called Relenza.
6: You have to inhale Relenza. Not so fun. But Relenza had Newman, the mail carrier from Seinfeld. Mm -hmm. Who is it? It's me, Influenza, you know, the flu, coming in.
7: Hello, Newman. Yep.
6: Yeah, sorry, I don't get
10: it.
7: He's Influenza. How are you? And he'll <laughs> make you miserable with symptoms
10: like fatigue, high fever, cough, headache, and body aches. People
7: say I have an infectious laugh. What do you think? <laughs> Introducing Relenza, a new prescription medicine to help you start feeling better sooner. The virus that causes the While Relenza had the star power of Newman, Tamiflu had a plan for this because they had something more important, experts. According to their marketing plan, they were going to, quote, align Roche with credible third-party advocates, doctors, flu researchers, and government agencies.
3: And, And we've got a term for people like that.
6: We call them key opinion leaders. And so Deborah starts wondering, which key opinion leaders are we talking about?
7: She starts digging into the top public health experts, people at the World Health Organization. The WHO had created influenza guidelines in 2004. These were recommendations for all governments.
3: And one, I remember one particularly distinct um, recommendation was we must pile antivirals, which obviously
6: included Tamiflu. And then Deborah starts looking into the people who actually wrote the recommendation.
7: Okay, here's the list of contributors to the WHO influenza pandemic plan. We have Frederick Hayden, professor of internal medicine and pathology at the University of Virginia.
6: And a paid Roche consultant.
7: Carl Nicholson, professor of infectious diseases at Leicester Royal Infirmary.
6: And a paid Roche
7: consultant. Abe Osterhaus, a professor at the Institute of Virology, Erasmus University.
6: And a contributor to Roche marketing material.
7: Dr. Renee Snacken, a senior expert at the European Centre for Disease Prevention and Control.
6: OK, he's also the writer of a Roche promotional booklet. The people that had marketed Tamiflu,
3: or people had done research on behalf of Roche, they were the same people who were drawing up the guidelines uh, for what to do in a pandemic. And I thought, should those same people be advising governments? Surely they've got a kind of conflict of interest. It was really controversial to raise the spectre that perhaps Scientists were less than objective, and they had financial ties, and the backlash was phenomenal. I mean, for, for for the record, you know, not proud of this. I was I was phoned up by Alex Jones, shock jock, and he was trying to he was trying to
6: goad me into saying all sorts of stuff. Deborah gets a lot of pushback. Some say her reporting feeds into the right wing conspiracy that medical science is some kind of secret plot.
7: But she wasn't the only serious journalist raising flags about Tamiflu. And the WHO wasn't the only health agency that seemed to have ties with Roche. You uh, checking the levels now? BMJ. Okay.
6: Jeannie Lenzer also wrote for the BMJ. She's an investigative reporter, like Deborah. She's a doll. I love her.
2: If you talk to her again, you say hello to her for me. I, I've got I've to email her.
6: Jeannie had a similar career trajectory to Deborah medicine first, then journalism. Did your co-workers, did your medical co-workers start to notice that, oh, Genie's,
2: we're kind of losing Genie to the world of journalism? <laughs> yeah, uh, I drive people crazy with my uh, skepticism about things.
7: Unlike Deborah in London, Jeannie's in the U.S. Do you say
2: Roche or Roche? Roche. You say Roche. Roche. Okay.
7: Jeannie had seen Deborah's investigation into the WHO, and it got her wondering about Roche and public health experts closer to home.
6: So she's paying particular attention to the US Centers for Disease Control, the CDC. At the height of the swine flu pandemic, 2009, the CDC is ramping up flu prep efforts and it puts out this PSA video.
1: Remember the expression, take two and call me in the morning? I'm not sure I do.
6: Yeah, I had to look this up. Apparently, this was like the cliche thing to hear from your doctor. Take two aspirin and call me in the morning.
1: Well, when it comes to influenza, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention says it's best to take three. It could save your life.
7: Dr. Brzee, what does CDC mean by take three? Take three is a way for people to remember the three main actions they can take to fight the flu.
6: This PSA came out in 2009 at the height of the swine flu pandemic. The host sits with Dr. Joe Breezy, yes, that's his real name, on a set that looks a lot like a Charlie Rose interview. They're at a round wooden table with water glasses, infinite black space beyond them. They're saying there's three main steps to beat influenza. The first two were your basics. Get the flu vaccine and cover your mouth and nose when you cough.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? you need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system.
7: And three, three is take antiviral drugs if you get sick with a flu and your doctor prescribes them. These drugs can make you feel better faster or make your symptoms milder.
2: The important one to me was number three, take your antiviral drug, which basically was Tamiflu, because that was the drug. To put it
1: very simply, if I or one of the members of my family got flu or a flu-like illness, I would get them or me treated with with, uh, Tamiflu as quickly
0: as possible.
6: This is the then head of the CDC, Tom Frieden, on
2: a CDC telebriefing with reporters. They were saying that um, Tamiflu was life-saving.
10: The evidence indicates that it will shorten how long you're sick, might keep you out of the hospital, and could even save your life.
6: This didn't line up for Jeannie. She had seen what the other main U.S. federal health agency, the Food and Drug Administration, had said about Tamiflu that there wasn't enough evidence that it did more than reduce flu symptoms by about a day.
7: You remember that big asterisk the FDA put on it? Well, it's still there. Despite everything you've heard, despite the Kaiser Review, despite the WHO's recommendations, and despite the stockpiling, according to the FDA, Tamiflu still has no secondary infection-stopping superpowers. They're pretty clear about this. They said
2: you cannot claim that it either reduces pneumonia or mortality. That was the FDA's conclusion after reading the data. And CDC is saying the opposite. So what's going on? Jeannie writes a
6: couple articles about how odd it is that the CDC seems to be pushing Roche's ad speak about Tamiflu. And then she gets an email from someone within
2: the CDC. An infectious disease specialist physician contacted me and said that he thought my article was spot on. He kept saying, this drug does not appear to have good effect against flu of any form. And I said, this really smells like money to me. And he said, oh no, 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 the CDC is independent. And it just didn't seem like that to me. It it didn't make sense, it didn't add up. And it didn't add up to him clinically. So what's going on?
7: The Center for Disease Control is widely considered the best and most important public health agency in the world. They're considered the gold standard because they give evidence-based advice and they do so impartially.
2: In fact, they write it on their um, recommendations that they do not take industry funding. They don't take it. Period. End of sentence. That's what they say. But Jeannie notices
6: there's something called the CDC Foundation, which takes donations.
2: She starts emailing with the CDC press person about what exactly that means. So when I finally got them to admit that they were getting millions of dollars from industry, it turns out that those donations, 100% of them, are directed, meaning that the companies that donate, quote-unquote, to the CDC, they donate with specific directives that has to be on the topic that benefits their drug. I have my correspondence with CDC. Uh, documented with CDC after pulling some teeth over there that, in fact, the entire Take Three campaign had been funded by Roche to the tune of $198,000.
6: Remember that competitor flu drug, Relenza? Once Tamiflu's marketing push really got going, Relenza didn't stand a chance.
7: I feel a little bit like I'm living in The Truman Show. Truman Show is about a man who thinks everything is normal. In reality, he's the star of a television show. But he's the only person on that show who doesn't know it's a show. Everyone who works with him, everyone who cares for him, everyone who loves him, they're actually working for a company, the makers of that television program.
4: You can't stand
7: me. That's not
4: true. Why don't you let me fix you some of this new mo-cocoa drink? All
2: natural cocoa beans from the upper slopes of Mount Nicaragua, no artificial sweeteners. What the hell are you talking about?
0: Who are you talking to? I've tasted other cocos. This is the best.
7: So many of the experts in Tamiflu's story, the research experts, the public health experts, the policy wonks, coming into this, I would have thought they were giving us their independent judgment. I thought they just tasted all the other cocos and this is the best. But what I'm learning is many of the key experts in this story are Roche-backed.
6: But this isn't some sinister plot made by some all-powerful director. It's a system that has sprung up organically. Because there's so much industry money in this system. Perhaps the most shocking part of the story, it's not that Roche is doing something crazy. It's that a lot of what they're doing is typical. Like... Roche doing their own studies. 70% of drug trials in the U.S. are funded by the very same people who are trying to sell the drug. Ghostwriters, it's hard to find exact stats, but the best research estimates that around 20% of large drug trials have medical ghostwriters. Industry-funded experts advising governments? Also par for the course.
10: If anybody is any good uh, as an expert, everybody will want to talk to them.
6: This is Stephen Toovey. He's an infectious disease doctor, also a longtime researcher and consultant with Roche.
10: Whether it's governments, industry, the military, um, private research bodies, non-governmental organizations, intergovernmental organizations, there are only so many real experts to go around. Their credibility, I think, rests upon them giving unbiased and credible advice that ultimately always has to be based upon data or based upon evidence. Mm-hmm. So so you're, I, you're
6: saying if, if you're good the government wants you and drug companies are going to want you?
10: Exactly, exactly. I, what you want is the the best advice from the best minds working in an area or on a subject.
6: I'm trying to think of whether it feels like a cynical view or an optimistic view to say that um, that an industry funding in research in pandemic planning is um, is kind of inherent to the to, to the research. Do you do you feel like it's it's cynical to say, oh well, pharmaceutical companies are always going to be involved, or optimistic?
10: Well, I i think there are lots of parties who are involved certainly there are many academic uh, organizations who have undertaken pandemic planning and research and modeling independently sometimes and this again comes to potential conflicts of interest industry will go to those people because it knows they are the best modelers you know uh, these big pharmaceutical companies don't necessarily have the right skills in the house Um, And they will go to the best people in academia and ask them to do a job for them. So I I think you want to have all of these parties involved.
6: We can't say Roche influenced the judgment of all these experts. We have no real evidence of that. But yes, this Truman Show kind of world, as you put it, sure, industry has played a role in creating it. But if the drug works, the drug works.
10: I think there's possibly an anti-Tamiflu lobby, for want of a better term.
6: Stephen does not think Tamiflu is some magic cure for influenza. But he does think there's good solid evidence it can help. And we need all the help we can get when it comes to flu pandemics. I talked with another researcher who's worked with Roche. He was the author of one of the trials in the Kaiser Review. He assured me plenty of other research confirmed that Tamiflu does what the Kaiser Review says it does. He sent me six research articles to back that up. A third of them were industry funded.
7: Tom Jefferson and the Cochrane team spent years going back and forth with Roche fighting to get the raw data from the early Tamiflu trials.
6: Finally, in April 2013, four years after Hayashi's comment on the Cochrane Review, Roche gave in and handed over 80 different Tamiflu trials, every trial Roche had funded.
4: These are the the accounts of the trials, which are thousands of pages long.
6: Tom Jefferson and his team read through about 16,000 pages of trial data on Tamiflu. And in 2014, they published a new review article about Tamiflu.
7: They again concluded that it did seem to shorten how long adults suffered from the flu, by about 17 hours. But they added that it didn't decrease the chance of getting a secondary infection, at least not in a statistically significant way. And they also added, Hayashi was right. Tamiflu increased a person's likelihood for nausea, headaches, and psychiatric events.
6: What did it mean to you to have possibly gotten the early reviews wrong?
4: It meant, uh, it, it, it meant, uh, it, it meant a lot to us because we made amends. Uh, we apologized for having
7: got it wrong. So 15 years after the FDA had first looked at Tamiflu, the Cochrane team had basically found the same thing. Tamiflu gets you one less day of flu symptoms and no secondary infection-fighting superpowers. 15 years of going back and forth over the data, we basically end up exactly where we began, except with billions of dollars of Tamiflu in the emergency stockpiles.
3: I remember this about two years ago. This young public health doctor was telling me about Tamiflu and the fact that there was very little evidence for it and the the country had stockpiled it. and I was listening, having the story I'd investigated relayed back to me so it had become part of his training. So in 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 many ways, my girlfriend said, oh, she said, oh, so sorry that you've just been mansplained." And I was like, actually it, it's it's fine because if if what you have reported becomes just established and accepted as facts, this is what has happened. That's not a bad place to be as a journalist.
7: The FDA now asks drug companies to register trial data on a government website. Tammy Flew became
4: a sort of poster boy, became a sort of poster story for the absolute necessity to access uh, data, especially on drugs on vaccines, on anything, but especially on things which are given
7: to scores of people. Millions of people. Tom is suing Roche for $1.5 billion on behalf of the US government. This is under something called the False Claims Act. If Tom won, he could get up to a 30% share of the damages. So he stands to gain a tonne. He has a conflict of interest regarding Tamiflu, and the Cochrane collaboration won't let him write about it anymore. But he insists the lawsuit is about principle.
6: Why? Why are you? Why are you so passionate about this?
4: Um, would you like to be fooled? Do you like being fooled, Audrey? Do you like being made to look like an idiot?
6: I reached out to Dr. Kaiser, the author of the Kaiser Review. I wanted to know what he thought of all this. Turns out Kaiser was also not down with how much his Tamiflu study got waved around. It was just one paper, he said. The study was oversighted and used abusively, he told me. Quote, it was not under my power to control this.
7: We asked the CDC about their Roche-funded Take 3 campaign, but they did not respond to our request for comment. In 2016, about a dozen senior CDC researchers submitted an open letter to the CDC chief of staff. They expressed concerns over ethics of the agency.
6: Stephen Tuvey, the Roche-affiliated researcher, he stands by Tamiflu, and his research contradicts the idea that it causes psychiatric events. We never got Roche's full side of the story, but they did send us an email.
7: Tamiflu has been the standard of antiviral care for influenza for many years. It has made a significant difference both to the treatment of seasonal influenza, as well as in the management of the H1N1 pandemic. They went on to say Roche has complete confidence in the safety and efficacy of Tamiflu, and the company plans to vigorously defend itself against the allegations if Thomas Jefferson decides to pursue the litigation.
6: Roche did not respond to our concerns over research funding, or questions about Roche-affiliated researchers advising the WHO or the CDC. But they did give us a list of Tamifu's benefits, all sourced to studies that could be tied back to Roche. Oh, and by the way, they said there is no set pronunciation for Roche.
7: That's Audrey Quinn, I'm Gordon Kadik, and this is Cited. After the break, what can Tamiflu teach us about our current pandemic? It really means a lot when you write to me, even when you take exception with things I've said. A person calling themselves A.S. wrote to me after the sixth episode of Secondary Symptoms, In that episode, I said that George Floyd was publicly lynched, but AS said he did not get lynched. I think it's important to call something for what it is. He got killed, murdered, suffocated. Calling it lynching takes away from the actual unspeakable horrors of lynching and the history thereof. You've got a point. I was using a bit of rhetorical flourish there. I think probably most people wouldn't define what happened as lynching, but I think the word captures the brutality of that moment. In fact, Floyd's brother described it as a, quote, modern-day lynching, and Nancy Pelosi recently referred to police chokeholds as lynching. So more and more people are turning to that word. Jason Newton at Cornell University enjoyed episode 5, Made of Corn. He wrote on Twitter, quote, It's important to understand the Malthusian neoliberal logic behind transgenic corn. This logic dictates that all land is part of global markets and must be used efficiently. That destroys local self-determination. And a couple people seem to be using our materials in their classes. Dr. Kendra Coulter is using our episode, The COVID Kings, in her class, Animals at Work. If you do want to use our stuff, feel free, but do let me know, because I'd love to report that kind of thing to our funders, like the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council. I really do enjoy seeing your thoughts, so keep sending them my way. You can write to us at info at Or hit us up on Twitter, that's at Cited Podcast, or you can find me directly at Gordon Kadic. That's G-O-R-D-O-N-K-A-T-I-C. Okay, that's it for now. Back to our regular scheduled programming. We are again rushing to find a pandemic treatment drug and again, politicians are looking at using existing drugs for off-label use. Hydroxychloroquine took the early lead.
10: We, do, we would like to see very quick approvals, especially with
4: things that work.
10: If it works, then it'd be great. If it doesn't work, we know for many years, malaria, it, it's incredible what it's done for malaria. It's incredible what it's done for lupus, but it doesn't kill people. All I can tell you is, so
9: far, I seem to be okay.
7: Research labs across the country have identified 69 different drugs that are candidates for off-label use to treat the novel coronavirus. There
10: are no licensed drugs for it at all, nothing whatsoever.
6: Again, Stephen Tuvey, the Roche-affiliated drug researcher.
10: If we had a drug that people thought might work, or there was some evidence that it would work, would you take it? Would you want, would you want it to be available?
6: Yeah, I think I'd want to know a little bit more about it, but it would be very tempting to get excited that, oh, there's a possibility this could be helpful, yeah.
10: I think the answer is when you're looking at a very severe disease with a significant mortality in the population, you probably do want to have drugs available. Now, I mean, we use drugs all the time, so-called off-label. Physicians do that because they understand the disease, they understand the drug.
2: It's interesting that you're doing this follow-on from Tamiflu because it, it is echoes. Journalist Jeannie Lenzer. It reminds me, you know, back when I was reporting on Tamiflu, the same process that I went through in in studying the Tamiflu issue is here now with the drugs that are
7: being used. Gilead, remember, that's the company that originally created Tamiflu. Well, their drug remdesivir has emerged as the front runner.
0: Dr. Fauci, it's good to see you with some good news to report this morning. You you know, you said that remdesivir is not a knockout. This isn't a miracle drug, but it sounds like it is a breakthrough. Can you explain why? Well, it's a really important proof
7: of concept because this is the first very highly powered, about 1,100 individuals, and it was a placebo-controlled, randomized trial, which I've been talking about for some time now, which is really the gold standard of how you prove something is safe and either works or doesn't work. And although the results were clearly positive from a statistically significant standpoint, they were modest. Despite the modest improvement in one trial, the FDA has granted remdesivir permission for emergency use, and the EU has fast-tracked approval. Dr. Fauci declared that the drug is the new standard of care. But
6: G says there are problems with the study. It's not enough to know it was randomized, placebo-controlled, because researchers can make major tweaks throughout the process. For example, the remdesivir trial completely changed the methodology part way through.
2: That's drawing a circle around your arrow after you've fired it. You, you can, you're not supposed to do that in medicine. You're supposed to have a hypothesis, and you're supposed to test that hypothesis. But instead, get buckshot, and you like where the one buckshot landed. And so you
7: draw a circle around it and say, see, we got the target. The trial did show that patients would get released from hospital four days sooner if they took remdesivir. But the trial didn't show a significant decrease in mortality. It might have. But the research was stopped part way through because of the drug's purported
2: benefit. We know that if you stop a trial early for benefit, it tends to create a false impression of benefit, that you really need to run a trial out to the end because you can't just look and say, oh, at this moment it was good, I like it, let's stop the trial.
6: Remdesivir could very well work, but Jeannie says we should do more trials. And most of all, if Tamiflu has taught us anything, It's that we need to actually see the full data, now. Federal law says researchers don't have to report the data for a year, and often that time can be extended for three years. But by the time we get to see the data, will it be too late?
7: The experts I talked to predict that we're likely to see remdesivir stockpiling within months. Of course, nobody has a crystal ball, but the markets seem to agree. Gilead's stock is up, An analyst estimate the drug could make upwards of $7 billion in two years. The company has already donated 1.5 million vials to the federal government, and they plan to sell it as a COVID-19 treatment by as early as this month.
2: These are age-old problems that just keep repeating themselves and repeating themselves. I mean, I've been in the field for 30 years, and you just watch the same things happen over and over again.
6: I live in New York City, the epicenter of the pandemic in the US. Do I want an effective drug treatment? Of course. I'd hope the research is done right and transparently. But at the same time, I look down at the hospital four blocks away from me. Staff there have relied on crowdfunding to buy masks. Other nearby hospitals have improvised ways to have patients share ventilators.
7: So maybe this is a bigger story than does this drug work? Does that drug work? Maybe it's a question of priorities. We should ask ourselves, why do we underfund things that we know work and throw money at questionable drugs that might shave a few days off an illness?
6: As medical providers still struggle to get the basic gear they need, states may soon be gearing up to buy remdesivir or perhaps some other drug. And the strategic national stockpile still holds at least $1.5 billion worth of Tamiflu that's about a fifth of the total value of the stockpile. And just last year, the stockpile managers ordered $40 million more.
7: This episode was produced by Audrey Quinn and me, Gordon Caddock, with editing from AC Rowe and Gordon Caddock. Franklin Bartol was our research assistant. Our theme song and original music is by our composer, Mike Barber. Fact-checking on this episode by Aurora Tejeda and Paul Legier. Dakota Coop is our graphic designer. Cited's production manager is David Tobias, and Citad's executive producers are Gordon Kadik and Sam Fenn. Thanks to Hannah Arbor for Japanese translation, as well as Shungo Kano, who voiced Keiji Hayashi's clips. This episode was funded in part by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council. It's part of a wider project looking at trends in pharmaceutical research and policy. Dr. Joel Lechin at the University of Toronto and Professor Sergio Sismundo at Queen's University are the research advisors on that project. Cited is produced out of the Center for Ethics at the University of Toronto, which is on the traditional land of the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabe, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat people. Cited is also produced out of the Michael Smith Laboratories at the University of British Columbia. That's on the unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and tsleil nations.